At this time, we now come to our point of worship and in which we proclaim God's word and we worship God by seeking his word. And we pick up this morning where we left off nearly five weeks ago, Colossians chapter 1. And beginning in verse 9, what we see is Paul expressing his desire for the Colossians. And he expresses this desire for them through prayer, that they may be fully content and fully competent in the Lord, and gives thanks, or asks that they may give thanks, because through his Son, he has provided redemption and the forgiveness of sins, it says in verse 14. And then we entered the Christmas season, and that's where we entered Matthew chapter 1 and the first part of Matthew chapter 2. And that served, in my eyes, a tremendous follow-up to the presentation of Christ as Savior. So we saw that Christ indeed was Savior in Colossians chapter 1, and then it went into Matthew chapter 1 to see him coming as Savior. And we see that he indeed is a fulfillment of the Lord's plan for redemption. I summarize that for you so that we may see the progression of study of what we've been doing and what we've seen. So that we can then re-enter Colossians this morning, Colossians chapter 1, and see this great exaltation of who Christ is. We come to this passage this morning, a passage that causes us to set our minds on the things above. And so it is my prayer that it will stir our hearts and cause us to draw near to God by exalting the Son of God. And so, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, and I want to bring to you a message that I have called, The Preeminent Christ, Christ Over Creation. And as always, I want to ask those of you who are able to please stand for the reading of God's Word. For the sake of review, I want to begin reading and Verse 9, Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. 
And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of the flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. You may be seated. Who you are in Christ is who you are in life. As I've quoted from this pulpit before from one commentator, tell me what you think of Christ and I will tell you everything about you. Tell me what you think of Christ and I will tell you the state of your theology and the state of your worship, the state of your prayer and the state of your study, and even the state of your relationship with him. Everything hinges on your view of Christ. A high, lofty view of Christ leads to high and holy living. A high, eminent view of Christ leads to a high and preeminent relationship with him. And a high, exalted view of Christ leads to high, exalted worship of Christ. Everything hinges on your view of Christ. What you think about Christ determines your direction in life. What you think about Christ determines your devotion to the giver of life. And what you think about Christ determines your destination after life. Who you are in Christ is who you are in life. For a deeper relationship with God, then we must have deeper thoughts of God. For a more profound worship of God, we must have more profound thoughts of God. And for a greater devotion to God, we must have greater thoughts of God. One seminary professor laments that our weak thoughts of God, our weak thoughts of Christ, are perpetuated by our weak theology of Christ. For needs that only theology will fulfill, most Christians turn instead to the inadequacy of just devotional literature. Christians are content with weak content. They fail to grow because they fail to challenge themselves to grow. In a letter to Erasmus, Martin Luther writes, Your thoughts of God are too human. And so it is with most people. They think little of God because they think little about God. Our thoughts of God are often nothing more than our thoughts about humans applied to God. Our text in Colossians this morning elevates our thoughts from human explanations to God's revelation. We read here not man's thoughts about God, but instead, because this is a divinely inspired word of God, we read God's thoughts about himself. If you want shallow reflections in Christ, now is the time to stop reading. If you want effortless observations, about Christ, then do not advance forward in the text this morning. But if you are unsettled by cheap, easy musings of Christ, then you must read on and ponder what is revealed in our text this morning and ponder what Christ's own words are about himself. I want you to note first the proclamation of Christ in the first line of verse 15. 
the proclamation of Christ. Paul writes, he, Christ, is the image of the invisible God. The first work of Christ is to proclaim God the Father. He's revealing the one who has been unseen to those who see, making the invisible become visible. These words and the ones that follow here in this text are a grand shift in Paul's perspective of Christ. At one time, he saw Christ as the enemy of God, going so far as to even orchestrate persecution against anyone who would either otherwise. But now he views Christ not as the adversary of God, but as the appearance of God. The Lord tells Moses, No one can see me and live, because to perceive God is to see his holiness, which is incompatible with man's sinfulness. And so therefore to look upon God would usher in instantaneous death. For this reason, God remains hidden from sight. It is a necessary restriction to, to restrict or to preserve human life or physical life. Anytime the Lord appears in scripture, we see that he does so and he's always veiled by something. He's obscured so that he may not be looked upon directly. With the birth of Christ, the invisible becomes visible. John writes in chapter 1, verse 18, No one has ever seen God. And then in John 14, 9, Christ tells Philip, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Indeed, he is the revelation of the invisible God. To see Christ is to see God, because God the Son is the image of God the Father. Just as any child is in, made in the likeness of his or her parents, so also Christ gives likeness or form to the likeness of God. Only twice in Scripture do we see something said about the manifestation of God's likeness. The first comes at creation in Genesis 1.27, in a text that you no doubt know very well. When God creates man and says, let us make man in our image. Like God, humans possess intellect and emotion and will, all of which reflect who God is. But the image that, of God that humans reflect is distorted. Lacking absolute holiness, the image then is corrupted because it lacks the moral purity of God. But Paul writes to the Corinthians to affirm, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. And in verse 4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. As the image of God, Christ is a perfect manifestation of God. He is a perfect revelation of God. The same word is found in Matthew 22, 20. And it's at that point in Matthew 22 when the Pharisees are seen to be plotting on how they can entrap Jesus, or the, the text literally says, entangle Christ in his own words. And to do this, they ask in verse 17 of Matthew 22, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Being aware of their test, Jesus Christ responds, 
show me the coin for the tax. And so they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness, whose image and inscription is this? The same concept is in view here in our text in Colossians 1.15. Much like the coin is a replica of the likeness of Caesar, Christ is a mere image of God. But Christ's reflection is much deeper. Because a mirror can only reflect an image. But Christ is reflecting God's essence, God's nature. He's revealing God's character. We see this evidenced in our scripture reading this morning. In John chapter 17. As Christ prays, he declares that he and the Father are one. And that they are of the same nature is what this is saying. Several times throughout the prayer, he says he has completed the will of the Lord and that he has revealed his name to the people. He says several times, I have manifested you to the people. That is, Christ has overseen the Lord's plans. He's manifested the Lord's name and he's demonstrated the Lord's nature. While humans may not be made in the, may be made in the Lord's image, having will and emotion and intellect, as I just said, Christ's reflection of the Lord is pure and unadulterated. Unlike humans, Christ's reflection is not obscured by a sinful nature. It is not distorted by impurity. Only Christ is the perfect depiction of God's intuition. Only Christ is the perfect reflection of God's emotion. And only Christ is the perfect participation in God's volition. Because he is a representative of God, Jesus is a representation of God. He is the representative of God. I'll say that again. Because he is a representation of God, he is a representative of God. Jesus Christ is acting on God's behalf. He is acting as an authoritative emissary or a mediator from God to us. As his image, Jesus is called to manifest God's presence. Conferred upon him at birth is the name Emmanuel, because Jesus quite literally is God with us. He is the presence of God with the people of God. Also, as his image, Jesus is called to represent God's preference. That is to say, he is the fulfillment of God's plan and intentions, coming only to do the will of the Father. And as his image, Christ is called to illuminate God's essence. He is the image of God. He is a replica of God's own nature, and therefore he portrays the essence of God. And finally, as God's image, Christ is called to allocate God's assurance. By his work, Christ provides assurance to believers. By him, any person may know with confidence his or her position before God. The appearance of Jesus Christ is a proof of grace of God. Because not only because through Christ God provided us with this grand provision of restitution for our sins, but because God has provided us with a clear representation of himself. Our God does not keep himself hidden from his people. He does not remain concealed from those who may want to know him. He does not maintain a secret lair so that he is unreachable. 
and neither does he conceal himself behind a bunch of masks so that his identity is no unknown. By the grace of God, he has made himself known through his son, Jesus Christ. He is exposed, completely revealed, so that people may unreservedly come to him. Is it any wonder then that Peter, James, and John argue about the privilege of being able to sit at the right hand of Christ, sit next to Jesus in heaven? Certainly they were selfish in doing so. Asking such a question and arguing about it further shows their lack of humility. Yet these three had been present at the transfiguration. They, of all disciples, had witnessed more of God's glory or more of Christ's glory than any of the other disciples. And no doubt that experience left an impression on them so that they could be content with nothing less. Indeed, seeing even a portion of God's glory certainly must have caused them to want to see more of Christ's glory. To be near to Christ was to be near to God. If only we saw God as the disciples did. If only we could be content or not be content with anything less than God's presence. Instead of being satisfied with counterfeit copies or fraudulent fellowship, we would seek the legitimate companionship of the true God. If only we would stop seeking the God we want and start seeking the God who is in all his splendor and all his majesty. I want you to note second, the position of Christ. If we read from the midway in verse 15 through verse 16, we come to the position of Christ, and the text reads, He is the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. If Jesus is not only the consummation of God's promises... He is also the commencement of God's plan. He is the beginning of all things. He is not only the author of creation, but he is authoritative over creation. While Christ may be the firstborn of Joseph and Mary, it's not this physical birth that Paul speaks of in our text. In history, it was the firstborn who was first in line for the family rank. In family, it was the firstborn who was first in line for the family inheritance. In royalty, it was the firstborn who was in line for the family reign. Yet in biblical theology, biblical history, being born first was not a guarantee of one's rights as firstborn. While Ishmael was born first, it was Isaac who received the privileges of the firstborn. While Esau was born first, it was Jacob who received the blessing of the firstborn. Proving his sovereignty, the rights of the firstborn were bestowed upon a child at God's discretion. Most notably, the background of the firstborn is subverted by the Lord at the birth of David. Psalm 89, 20, 21, it says, I have found David, my servant, my hand shall be established by him. And then in verse 27, we come to this, and I will make him, David, the firstborn, the highest of kings of the earth. 
despite being the youngest of all his brothers and being considered the weakest as well, he is declared to be the firstborn. In the same way that David was exalted, so Christ will also be exalted as the son of David, so that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Christ's position as firstborn is affirmed by the use of three tiny words in verse 16. By, through, and for. First, Paul asserts that by him, by Christ, all things were created. That is to say that Christ is the originator or the initiator of creation. Hebrews 1.10, it says, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Colossians says that all things came into being. There is nothing that exists except by the work of Christ alone. Second, Paul asserts that all things were created through him. This phrase calls attention to Christ's role as mediator, as one who stands between two entities. In this case, Christ is the mediating agent between God and creation, so that God spoke through Christ to have creation come into being. Hence, he is the word. It's the same thing we see in Christ's work as mediator with us. Christ's work as a mediator at creation provides that example of what it means to be a mediator for us. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 It is said that God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is to say we are reconciled to God through Christ, just as creation came through Christ. Ephesians 2.18, for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So creation was done by Christ and through Christ. And then the last phrase, the last little word says it was done for Christ. That is to say that Christ is the end goal of creation. It was created for him so that all things in creation move towards Christ. One day, all of creation will be restored to its original intentions. And one day, every knee will bow down to Christ as Lord. This is the position of Christ. I want you to note, third, the pre-existence of Christ. First part of verse 17 simply says, And he is before all things. To indicate that Christ is before all things is to say, before everything was, Christ was. Before all of creation came into being, Christ already existed. To the Corinthians, Paul asserts that the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is is stronger than men. We see that in 1 Corinthians 1.25. And then following that reasoning and following that argument... It says this, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing, think, to, th- to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And note what it says in verse 30. 
And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So in 1 Corinthians 1, while the Jews demanded signs and the Greeks sought out wisdom, Jesus Christ is greater than each of those, coming forth as wisdom personified. The presence of Christ discloses the wisdom of God. The connection between the wisdom of God and the pre-existence of Christ may seem meaningless. But I want you to turn with me to the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 8. Proverbs chapter 8 begins in verse 1 saying, Does not wisdom call? And to you, O man, I wisdom call. And then in verse 12, I wisdom dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. The entire chapter of Proverbs chapter 8 is an expression and interpretation of the work of wisdom. And so remembering that the preexistent Christ is wisdom personified, Read with me starting in verse 22. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountain had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he made the earth with its fields, or the first of the dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm skies above, when he established the foundations of the deep, and when he assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him, like a master workman. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and delighting in the children of man. Notice the exaltation there. That before of all of creation, wisdom already existed. As verse 23 notes, before the beginning of the earth, when there were no depths, no mountains, no fields, wisdom already had been placed. The Apostle John expands on this further. Writing in John 1.1, 1, 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And then you go to 1 John 1.1, 1, 1, and you read, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the Word of life. The life was made manifest. And we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. To be before all things means to pre-exist before all things. Again, we read in John chapter 17 this morning, verse 5 said, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Christ has always been, even before created the, he created the heavens and the earth with God. 
Christ was already present. That is to say that Christ's pre-existence displayed his eternality. For every believer, the eternality of Christ, the eternal existence of Christ, should bring us to a point of assurance that would not be possible if Christ was bound by time. First, because if Christ is eternal, he is unchangeable. Time is a measurement of both movement and change. Who you guys are when you entered the doors at the back of the church this morning when we started is different than who you will be when you leave after the service. Physically, you've changed. You've shed its cells and created new cells. To put it bluntly, you and I have aged. If I don't finish soon, we'll age even more. If I've done my job correctly, you've changed intellectually, having grown in the grace and knowledge of the truth of God. And if you've done your job correctly, you have submitted to the work of the Holy Spirit and relied upon him so that you may be changed spiritually. All of this is measured by time. Time measures who we were at birth and who we are at death. And it measures all the changes that took place in between those two. But because Christ is not bound by time, Christ is not bound to change. Who Christ was before creation is the same as who he is today. And the same as who he will be when creation ceases to exist in its current state. Christ's eternality is important in another way. It means that his decrees are eternal as well. If Christ is always the same, then his word is always the same as well. Consider what the next part of verse 17 says in our text in Colossians 1. It says that Christ sustains or holds all things together. All things. Because Christ has decreed that the earth shall orbit the sun every 365 days, we know that that will come to pass. Because Christ has decreed that winter will come every year, we know that winter will come. And that spring will likely follow. There is no doubt. So let me ask you this. What does Christ's eternality mean for your eternity? It means that Christ's decrees are eternal. And if they are eternal, so is salvation. When Christ stands before God and declares that he has redeemed us and saved us and justified us, when he declares that the penalty of sin has been paid in full, it will never be taken back. The great judge will never call a mistrial. He will never rescind the verdict. Because who Christ is before creation is the same as who Christ is today. And now we can say, We are in Christ now, and who we are in Christ now is the same as who we will be in Christ later. This is why I can confidently declare at the beginning of this message, what you believe about Christ determines who you are in life. This is why we're saying what you think about Christ determines everything about you. If you cannot say Christ is eternal, then you cannot say you are eternally saved either. But if you confess Jesus as Christ, Jesus as Lord eternally, then certainly we can confess our salvation eternally. 
I want you to note finally the purpose of Christ. Verse 17 ends, I alluded to it earlier, by saying this, and in him all things hold together. Not only is it true that without Christ there is no eternal life, but it is also true that without Christ there is no physical life. Not only is Christ responsible for the creation of life, but Christ's purpose is to sustain life, to hold it together. John MacArthur notes, Jesus maintains the delicate balance necessary to life's existence. He quite literally holds all things together. He is at the power behind every consistency in the universe. He is a gravity and centrifugal and centripetal force. He is the one who keeps all entities in space in their motion. He is the energy of the universe. Nehemiah 9.6 declares of God, You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. Paul writes, For us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and from whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom we are all things, and through whom we exist. Jesus Christ unites and holds all things together so that each aspect of creation functions accordingly. This incredible picture is depicted simply by an atom. In the center of an atom are the neutrons, particles that have no charge. And bound with them are the protons, particles that have a positive charge. And then orbiting around them, we have the electrons, electrons that have a negative charge. By Columns Law, which states that opposite forces will repel one another, meaning that the positive and the negative should repel one another, those electrons shouldn't be orbiting, but rather they should be flying away from that atom. Even physicists are still wondering today, what is it that holds them together? Why don't they fall apart? If you don't know physics history, then in the 1920s and the 1930s came the use of what are called atom smashers, whose sole purpose was to fire protons, meaning the the positive forces in the middle, into the middle of an atom. So adding an extra proton is what it did, and it shot it into the atom. The result of those experiments was an understanding that it took tremendous force to even just hold an atom together. And it was those experiments that eventually led to the development of things like the atomic bomb. The only thing scientists could conclude was that there was a strong nuclear force holding these, these things together, these particles, and they have no explanation beyond that. George Gamow, an early advocate and promoter and developer of the Big Bang Theory, recognized the seriousness of this discovery. And he noted that we live in a world in which practically every object is a potential nuclear explosive. Carl Darrow, a physicist at AT AT&T Laboratories, writes this in response. You grasp what this implies. It implies that all massive nuclei have no right to be alive at all. 
Indeed, they should never have been created, and if created, they should have blown up instantly. And here they are, some inflexible inhibition is holding them relentlessly together. The nature of the inhibition is also a secret. And he says it this way, one thus far reserved by nature for herself. But once again, the reliable word of God comes through with an explanation for something that science can't prove. It's Christ. That unknown force is Jesus Christ. It is he who holds all things together. These verses this morning provide for us a clear picture of reality. They're explaining for us the source of creation, the reason for creation, and the continuation of creation. We do not need to look further than the word of God to find the answers to the questions that bewilder even the most accomplished scientist. The answer always comes back to our Lord and Savior. Jesus Christ is a preeminent one. His work is to be the revelation of God, making the invisible visible. Thus he is the proclamation or proclaiming God. He is also in the position of existing as the firstborn over creation. He is superior in rank than all beings, whether spiritual or physical. Christ is also placed before all things or preexistent before all things. He precedes creation. He existed before creation. And we see finally the purpose of Christ, noting that his work is, is to sustain all things, to hold it together. The text paints for us an incredible picture of the work and worth of Christ. There is none like you, O Lord, as we declared in our call to worship. You are great, and your name is great in might. Jeremiah 10.6 In the words of Matthew Barrett, There is none greater than God, not because he is merely a greater version of ourselves, but because he is nothing like ourselves. No longer can we be satisfied with simple thoughts of Christ. Instead, we must dig deeply into his complexity because of his majesty. Let us not be content with shallow content. Instead, let us search out his eminence because of his greatness. If we know the worth of Christ, then we know Christ is worth knowing. As he stands exalted over creation, may we permit him to stand exalted over our lives. As Augustine says, or reminds people, Jesus Christ is not valued at all until he is valued above all. Let's pray. Our Father God, we are so grateful for who you are. We're grateful that, indeed, we have your Son, Jesus Christ. We're grateful that this morning we can look upon your word and see both his work and his worth. We can see his work at creation and being the beginning of all things. And now we see his work also as the sustainer of all things, Lord. Father, may that cause us to recognize both the relevance the worth of who Christ is, Lord.
Father, may we value him above all things. May we value him above ourselves, above our own life, Lord. Father, as Christ is preeminent in this world, Lord, may he be preeminent in our lives. Allow us to draw near to you by drawing near to him. Father, we are so grateful that you chose to reveal yourself to us, and you did so through your Son. And so, Father, may we, may we choose and desire to know him more and more. May you convict our hearts this week to ponder deeply the work and worth of your Son. We pray all these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.